Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we speak with two of the key people behind Beyond Nuclear International, which you can find at beyondnuclearinternational.org. First is Linda Pence. Gunter. Linda founded Beyond Nuclear in 2007 and serves as its international specialist as well as its media and development director. Prior to her work in anti-nuclear advocacy, she was a journalist for 20 years in print and broadcast, working for USA Network, Reuters, The Times, UK, and other US and international outlets. Beyond Nuclear works to support grassroots national and international efforts to phase out nuclear power in favor of safer, renewable energy choices. It also draws attention to the perpetual link between nuclear power and the pathway to nuclear weapons and advocates for a global nuclear weapons ban. Linda Pence Gunter, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for coming on and for the work you're doing. Beyond Nuclear has been around since 2007, but in 2018 you created this new website, beyondnuclearinternational.org. Is that right? That's right. So our advocacy website is beyondnuclear.org, and that's where all the day-to-day information is. And it's really geared towards people who are quite involved in the campaigns themselves. And the Beyond Nuclear International website is really kind of like an online magazine, if you like. So it's just articles, uh, many of them guest articles from outside writers, some of them from our own staff. And the idea behind that was really to try to appeal to the sort of humanitarian aspect of this and bring home the story of what nuclear power and nuclear weapons actually does to life, Speak. you know, to people, to animals, to the environment, and help people sort of relate more on a personal level to the detriments of these twin threats. Not a bad idea at all. Uh, You recently wrote an article called The Insanity of Punishing the Good. What were you referring to? Yes, well, that was specifically tied to the recent trial of uh, what are known as the Kings Bay Plowshares 7. So these are Catholic worker activists, part of the Swords into Plowshares movement, who entered uh, a nuclear, the Trident submarine base in Georgia by night, cut fences, painted signs, build their own blood and so forth. It's a passive, peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience action. Um, But they went to trial and they were all convicted for criminal activity. And so it was looked at purely from the point of view of of the law, but not from the morality side. In fact, the judge disallowed all those arguments before the trial even began. But, um, But I think, you know, sitting in that courtroom and realizing that here were people who are willing to risk everything, actually. I mean, three of them went into a a fire zone, you know, where you could be shot on site. Um, So they risked everything to try to draw attention to the heinousness of nuclear weapons, you know, the, the, the the true evil of the of possessing them and of intending potentially to use them. And yet we are, you know, here we are sitting in this little courtroom intent on punishing them and putting them back in prison when outside of that courtroom we have catastrophic climate change underway and it would seem much more relevant to turn our attention to something like that and just let these good people go home. But they're waiting the verdict which may come down in January or February so we don't know yet what the outcome will be for them. 
It's interesting that you put it that way, because I think I've read in your writing, as well as my own and others, that mm. that we ought to be paying attention not only to the climate collapse catastrophe impending, but also the uh, increasing risk of nuclear apocalypse. Absolutely. And actually, today, we just ran uh, an article which has already appeared. You know, sometimes we republish articles that we've seen online because it gives them a new audience and another lease on life, frankly. And uh, it's a very good article uh, about nuclear winter. I mean, it's it's not strictly about nuclear winter. It's about the latest research from Robok and Toon and others about um, what would happen if India and Pakistan had a nuclear exchange of, of nuclear weapons and what impact that would have globally on famine and even going back to a new ice age. And again, it's something that gets very little attention. And it, you know, it's sort of an open question. I tried to explore it in that earlier article, like, why is that? You know, it took a long time, obviously, for people to really get uh, agitated about the climate crisis too late, really. Um, and yet nuclear weapons doesn't seem to come up at all in the presidential debates or in the day-to-day discussion in the newspaper. And that was evident in Georgia at the Kings Bay trial, you know, that the mainstream media really paid very little attention to it. And so it begs the question, you know, does this, you know, does this work? You know, what, what can we do? But I think people have arrived at the point where they've tried letters, they've tried petitions, they've tried calling their senators, nothing's changed. And that's true in the climate action scene as well. And so it's come down to civil disobedience. Uh, as it almost always does and should and should get there sooner. But uh, you you work also, uh, unlike some opponents of nuclear weapons, against nuclear energy. What uh, yeah. What are the ties between the two? Well, as people say one thing leads to another, you know, and nuclear power does obviously directly lead to nuclear weapons. If you supply the technology, the personnel, the know-how and the materials, I mean, that's really what all the anxiety was around uh, Iran before that rather good, frankly, nuclear deal with Iran was cancelled by the Trump administration. That was an effort to inspect and verify closely exactly what Iran was doing because um, the administration there claimed that they were simply abiding by the nuclear non-proliferation treaty, which they signed, which was to develop nuclear power. But because you can keep enriching uranium to greater degrees and eventually it's weapons not only usable but you know weapons grade um that's a fuzzy line and it was blurry you know it was unclear whether that's indeed what they were doing which is why the iran agreement was put into place to to check that now that the u.s is out of that and it seems to be falling apart uh iran could very well go back to overtly or covertly uh, enriching uranium to weapons grade and, and go towards making the bomb. So that's really the pathway. And, um, it, you know, it, it started with so-called atoms for peace, as you know, and, and went downhill from there. Indeed, and not just Iran, but Saudi Arabia and various other nations in that region and around the globe uh, that are yeah. pursuing nuclear energy. That seems like a good enough argument right there against nuclear energy, but there are other arguments as well, are there not, in terms of, of, of finances and in terms of, uh, you know, the false claims that nuclear energy is, is green energy? Yes. I mean, there's an effort even in our state of Maryland to redefine or reclassify nuclear energy as renewable energy, believe it or not, which is, of course, ludicrous, but it's just a way to grab a share of the funding, the uh, federal funding or the state funding subsidies, because nuclear is so astronomically uneconomical. I mean, it really is falling apart financially as well as 
physically because a lot of the plants, of course, are very old and, and degraded and many more things start to go wrong at that point. So, yeah, the, the main argument in my mind against nuclear as a, an answer to or as a role in trying to now mitigate climate change is, aside from the dangers, is the fact that it's too slow and too expensive. And it, it's way too expensive. And so if you redirect the money that you would have to pump into nuclear to keep it going or even to build new ones, which would be really futile, um, is much better spent on developing renewable energy and energy efficiently rapidly. And you get much greater CO2 reductions for the same amount of money spent on those resources than piling it into nuclear. The other problem, of course, is that they take ages to build and come online. And even the so-called new designs that we've seen in action in France, in Finland, are still stalled and mired in cost overruns and delayed. And the ones in, in Georgia, too, the only two that are still being built in the U.S. are mired in cost overruns and delays. And so there's no chance of developing enough nuclear in time to do anything at all meaningful about reducing CO2. And then there's various pie-in-the-sky notions about small modular reactors and things which are still on paper and there are no orders for them. So again, time alone disqualifies nuclear aside from all the other many huge detriments they have related to the waste problem and, of course, safety and security. We're speaking with Linda Pence Gunter from Beyond Nuclear and BeyondNuclearInternational.org. Linda, you recently wrote another article called Does the Nuclear Industry Have a Back Door into Its Regulator? Does it? Oh, well, as we've sort of changed that to having a front door into the regulator. <laughs> it's not even that covert anymore. It's so obvious. I mean, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission has people sitting on it now, the commissioners who've come from the nuclear industry. I mean, there's, there's no longer any pretense about the revolving door there. It's very, very obvious. And astoundingly um, is taking a position... Um, that ignores the risks posed by the climate crisis. For example, in just re extending the license of the Turkey Point reactors in Florida, which are you know, practically at sea level, will clearly be inundated at some point in the future by the climate crisis. But they, they look at them all you know, generically rather than site-specifically. So all reactors are equal, and not, not even some are more equal than others. You know, they're all equal, and it's regardless of where they're situated or what their condition is. And so there's a sort of blank check or rubber stamp, whatever metaphor you want to use about this at the nuclear industry. And they've gone back and sort of reworked uh, recommendations by their own staff to increase safety at nuclear power plants. You know, the details are too arcane to get into in the time we have, but to, to the commission has taken those recommendations and sort of re drawn red lines through anything that is, you know, mandated. So it's all just, you know, industry self-reporting. You can self-regulate, but we're not going to require any of these safety upgrades. You can make them if you wish which, of course, they won't because they're too expensive and they don't want to spend money. So it, it's a scandal, actually. And the NRC is supposed to be accountable to Congress, but, you know, they've <laughs> never been called to account for... They might be now because I think there are some uh, certain people like Senator Whitehouse who's actually pro-nuclear power but was disturbed by these uh, developments who may, in fact, start to take some steps to, to bring them more in line, but um, they've been unfettered for way too long. I don't, I don't rapidly have an answer as to where Congress is doing a good job, but it seems like if there were one place where you would want to be serious about avoiding carelessness and corruption and conflicts of interest, this would be it. Nuclear programs would be it, wouldn't it? Yes, yes. And I, I think that it's possible that we could get more attention to it, except that we're in 
such insane times now, and the, and the focus of Congress is obviously elsewhere, that it's much harder to to get them to focus on something like this until, if and when, we have our own Fukushima nuclear disaster, which is too late. You know, our whole mission at Beyond Nuclear is to try to prevent something like that happening by getting the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to do its job and mandate safety. You know, it's supposed to protect the public, not the industry's bottom line. But that's unfortunately what it does. Now, we don't really want to wait till the harm is done by a nuclear accident in this country. But getting people to listen and pay attention, you know, without it's very difficult to get a sense of clear and present danger to people. The nuclear plants are kind of silent. They don't dis don't appear to release anything they do but there's no black smoke coming out you know there's nothing sort of obvious that that people can get their head around so trying to get that message across that is a clear and present danger is quite difficult well with my next guest and your colleague we'll be talking about how accidents in one part of the world affect the entire globe but with just a minute left here with you linda what can people do who want to get involved uh, and learn more and support what you're doing well, certainly they can get in touch with us at beyondnuclear.org. That's our uh, our organizational website. All our contact information is on there. I think it's really, really important to educate our elected officials. You know, we've been trying to do that on the Hill, but locally, statewide, everywhere, to get them to understand the true dangers of nuclear and why it isn't an answer to climate change. We have a booklet on the Beyond Nuclear International site about that and that people can order that from us or download it themselves and really try to get the word out locally, regionally and nationally. Indeed, excellent uh, brochure on why nuclear energy won't help in the climate crisis. Uh, we've been speaking with Linda Pence Gunter, who is a founder of Beyond Nuclear, founded in 2007. Check out beyondnuclear.org and beyondnuclearinternational.org. Linda, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. I appreciate it, Dave. Thanks very much. We are now joined by another writer for Beyond Nuclear International, Cindy Folkers. Cindy studies radiation impacts on health with particular focus on women, children, and pregnancy. She monitors and encourages community engagement with Congress and national scientific panels on radiation issues and advocates for community-based action that informs individuals on contamination levels and risk. Cindy also handles the administrative operations of Beyond Nuclear. Cindy Folkers, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for coming on. You recently wrote an article called Dangerous Radioactive Hot Particles Span the Globe. What were you referring to there? Well, so there are uh, different kinds of radioactive pollution, and in this case, the hot particles have some very important differences from what the traditional thoughts are about radioactive pollution. So, Hot particles, for instance, they don't dissolve in water, so their radioactivity stays very localized to the particle. And this is important because they're giving off huge amounts of radioactivity, which is the whole point of me writing my article. Um, They often contain more than one radionuclide, which is another problem when you're trying to assess where they're going in the environment and who they might pose a danger to and what kind of danger. They're teeny, teeny. Um, they're defined as less than one millimeter, but a lot of them that have been found are many times smaller than the width of a human hair. And that's important because they can be breathed in or ingested, and they can remain very radioactive for years. 
even in places that have had decontamination. So for places like Fukushima, which the, decontamin- the, the decontaminated areas continue to be recontaminated as contamination washes down from mountains um, and forests, these radioactive hot particles can remain. A part of the problem with them is that they require very special equipment to locate and isolate them from the environment, uh, again, because they don't follow the traditional assumptions of the kind of radioactive pollution that we're used to. And then because of that, they also require very special and complicated calculations to be able to know what their dose might be and then to be able to determine subsequent health impacts. And so these really detailed calculations, they're just not often done by regulatory bodies like the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission of the United States. And, of course, this is important because without a proper dose calculation to the people who might be exposed to these particles, you're not really going to be able to tell what kind of health impacts they're going to have. Um, So when you would ingest or inhale one of these hot particles, what the regulatory body does is it takes that dose and divides it among a lot of people, but the problem is is that that particle can only be in one person's body. And so that one person is getting all of the radioactivity and the other people aren't getting any. So the dose for the people who aren't getting it is underestimated and the dose for the person who has the particle, um, sorry, is the people who don't get the particle, their doses are overestimated and the person who inhales or ingests the particle, their dose is going to be severely underestimated. And so therefore what we have are a lot of particles that could be in the environment that could be giving doses that we don't understand. And it could help to explain why some of the things that happened after Fukushima, like some of the weird health impacts that we heard of, like severe skin rashes um, and nosebleeds among some of the, the children and adults, could possibly be explained by these hot particles, but wouldn't have been caught by the current regulatory regime because of the way they recalculate doses. And possible sources for this include, you write, Fukushima, Chernobyl, and, quote, various U.S. weapons sites. Uh, What did you have in mind there with that last phrase? Well, so there had been particles located at Hanford, um, and because they're located at Hanford, there could be some that come from other weapons sites like Rocky Flats, the Woolsey uh, fire could have released and resuspended some from Santa Susana Field Laboratory. The problem is, is that if these sites haven't been examined for these hot particles in particular because they're so hard to locate, you wouldn't necessarily know that it, the hot particles would be, a, would be a problem at the weapons sites. They can come from not just reactor cores, though, and not just from meltdowns, but they can come from all sorts of other sites that never really even fissioned, like uranium mining, um, and they've come from sites like uranium mine sites, the fuel fabrication sites, which make the uranium fuel. And so I don't want to give the impression that these hot particles are, A, the only kind of radioactive pollution that we need to be concerned with, or that, B, they only come from meltdowns because they don't. They have been located at other uh, sites, weapon sites, fuel fabrication, uranium, Um, certainly meltdowns at Chernobyl and Fukushima. You referred to one story from Pike County, Ohio. Can you recall what happened there? Right. So this was, uh, (laughs) this is ongoing too, I have to say. Um, And the school, the school in Pike County, Ohio had 
contamination from a local nuclear site um, where they found it inside the school, and DOE didn't let the, the community know about that for a number of, I believe it was years. And the community finally found out they did independent testing, um, and they found that their children could have been respiring these particles um, the whole time, and we don't really know for how long. Now, I believe that it's Zahn Middle School, and they are now trying to figure out how to integrate this knowledge with um, the fact that some of the children in the community, there seem to be higher levels of uh, radio, um, sorry, higher levels of cancer, and they're not sure um, if the cancer is associated with the facility, which was the uranium enrichment facility, and this one was military and civilian nuclear reactors. Um, and it's quarantined the last, as of the, the publishing of my article, the whole site has been quarantined, and the public is extremely outraged, as they should be. And actually, I want to point out something here. This is something that really is, is very important to note. When you're talking about public participation in these kinds of things, like my article points to public participation, uh, citizen science, and that means you know people in the, the places that might be contaminated by radio, radioactive isotopes. These people go out, they collect samples, they bring these samples um, to proper labs for testing, and there's a whole chain of custody. But it's really important that people understand that when scientists go into a community to study something like the Pike County, Ohio piece, or even Three Mile Island or Fukushima, it's always really important to ask the local community what's happening. What are they experiencing? What are their symptoms? Do they have higher levels of cancer and, or other impacts that are non-cancerous? Are there pregnancy difficulties? And I, I really always like to say this because without the stories of the local people, it's really hard to do proper science that leads to a public health uh, um, information or solution to what's going on in any of these communities. So, yeah, Pike County, Ohio, is a prime example of this, where the U.S. Department of Energy hid the information for years and didn't tell anyone, and now the community doesn't trust the Department of Energy um, not that they should, because the Department of Energy has a horrible record with this kind of thing and delving into what the public health implications are of radioactivity. But, you know, incidents like this, they certainly don't help. Uh, we were speaking just earlier with your colleague, Linda Pence-Gunter, about what it would take for the United States Congress or any department or agency of the U.S. government to, to really get aggressive uh, about doing its job on, on nuclear regulation. And she said, you know, the United States would have to have its own Fukushima. Uh, but has Japan uh, changed its policies? There was a three-mile island, as you just referred to, in the United States. And isn't Fukushima affecting the whole globe, not just Japan? So um, clearly, the radioactive contamination—not just hot particles, but you know, all, all sorts of radioactive contamination from Fukushima spread to other countries. There's, there's no question about that. Um, what I would say is, and I understand why Linda answered that, and I don't say that she's wrong because, but I, I really hope that that is not the case. I actually see, having worked with some of these communities and, and presented to them on health impacts of radioactivity, 
um, there are a number of monitoring efforts underway that are community-driven and community-based, not just with um, handheld monitors at Fukushima, like SafeCast was a group that started there after uh, Fukushima um, melted down, and so they're looking at contamination in the environment, and so they're tracking that. There is a group stateside that does trainings for monitoring for contamination in the environment called a radiation monitoring project, and it mostly focuses on First Nations or um, First Nations land because a lot of the time First Nations people are, are dealing with uranium sites. Um, and so part of me really wants people to become more involved in their own communities, their own monitoring, and their own health because, my goodness me, the government hasn't done what they need to have done for decades now, um, and it's because of a lot of entrenched interests um, that have lobbied our government for certain for certain regulations that are not protective enough, particularly of women, kids, and pregnancy. And so I really think that doctors and scientists and local people on the ground need to take some of this um, monitoring into their own hands. I mean, for instance, at Three Mile Island, one of the things that they did, which was really excellent, was some of the researchers took the party line and and wrote, uh, did research and wrote papers on the health impacts at Three Mile Island based on what the party line basically told them to do. However, there were researchers that came in, listened to the local communities about their impacts and what their health impacts seemed to be. Then they took the um, blood draw from the people who were there, and they looked at the blood, and inside the blood there were radiation markers where the radiation had damaged the genes of the people. And that had happened, this was about 15 years after the Three Mile Island people had been exposed. And, you know, these people had complained of pet death and hair loss and skin reddening, metallic taste in the mouth. These are all symptoms of higher levels of radiation exposure. And they found, lo and behold, that these people were exposed, according to their own blood, to a lot more radiation than officials were willing to admit at the time. And I say this as, I hold this up as an example to say, look, you can monitor the environment. You can also monitor the people if it's done properly right. in the wake of some of these exposures. And so I'm really pushing for efforts to bring this to the community levels and to get local people active and to have some accountability um, for this so that goodness, so that we don't have to have another three-mile island in this country. We've, we've unfortunately got just about one minute left. You know, when it comes to curing cancer, there's people with pink all over them. There's, there's marathons and 5Ks and every sort of public activity with pink on to raise money to cure cancer. Would you like to see something similar or even a fraction thereof aimed at preventing cancer, in, in particular from, from nuclear sources? Absolutely, and I think a lot of that is figuring out who might have been exposed, um, looking at environmental contamination, looking at what people's blood is saying in certain circumstances, and taking them for medical examinations earlier and being catching stuff early so that you can at least, if you can't completely prevent it, you can at least give them a shot at getting rid of it. But, you know, in order to prevent something like this, we really have to wean ourselves off of nuclear technologies um, specifically energy generation and weapons, because the sooner we do that, the better off we're going to be. 
No question. Very well said. We've been speaking with Cindy Folkers, who writes at Beyond Nuclear International. You can go to beyondnuclearinternational.org to learn more. We'll have links at talknationradio.org. Cindy, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.